0: Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Monday, September 27th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how 19th century New Yorkers took advantage of a loophole in the strict drinking laws and ended up creating the world's worst sandwich. Plus, a supernova that's been missing since the 12th century has been found. And how a young woman on TikTok accidentally caused havoc to thousands of scientific studies. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. As someone who's lived in New York for over a decade and has a particular interest in 19th century New York City, there was no way I wasn't going to click on this headline. To evade pre-prohibition drinking laws, New Yorkers created the world's worst sandwich. Wow. Thank you, Atlas Obscura, for catering your content exactly to me. Hopefully, those of you listening get something out of it as well. So, basically, in 1896, New York State enacted an excise law called the Rain's Law, which did several things to curb public drunkenness, something desired both by more religious Protestant folks living upstate and then-president of the police commission, Teddy Roosevelt. The Reigns Law, per Atlas Obscura, tripled the cost of an annual liquor license and raised it by 10 for beer taverns, restricted saloons from opening within 200 feet of a school or church, raised the drinking age from 16 to 18, forced saloon owners to keep their curtains open on Sundays so police could see if they were breaking the previously enacted Sabbath Day ban on serving alcohol, and it also banned a common saloon staple, the free lunch. Now, first, some context about this Sabbath day ban from Atlas Obscura. Quote, behind this lifestyle tug of war lay a cultural conflict of national proportions. Those in favor of the Sunday ban, generally middle class and Protestant, saw it as a cornerstone of social improvement. For those against, including the city's tide of German and Irish immigrants, it was an act of repression, an especially spiteful one because it limited how the average laborer could enjoy himself on his one day off. The Sunday ban was not popular to say the least among the city's Jews who'd already observed their Sabbath the day before." Not to mention, lodging houses with more than 10 rooms were allowed to serve alcohol to guests on Sundays so long as it came with a meal, which meant, as is often the case with bans, the wealthy were able to circumvent the Sabbath ban and go out to fancy hotels on Sundays and drink to their heart's content. But aware of this loophole, saloon owners decided to get creative. They started creating membership cards for their patrons and putting up boards in their basements and attics to turn them into rooms so that they could count as a lodging house. The final touch would be to come up with a meal to serve with their drinks. Enter the Rain's Sandwich, named after the law and the upstate senator who was its most staunch proponent. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Generally speaking, the sandwich was not edible. It was an old, desiccated ruin of dust-laden bread and mummified ham or cheese, wrote the playwright Eugene O'Neill. Other times, it was made of rubber. Bar staff would commonly take the sandwich back seconds after it had arrived, pair it with the next beverage order, and whisk it over to another patron's table. Some sandwiches were kept in circulation for a week or more, end quote." Despite the gross sandwich hardly anyone was eating and the laughable attempt at converting basements into lodging houses, the police and later the courts upheld these antics as in keeping with the laws. I'm assuming here that those same police and judges maybe were also bugged about the Reigns Law and hence their lax attitude. And so now-dubbed Rains' Hotels boomed. Brooklyn went from 13 registered hotels to 800 in just half a year. Richard Zacks, the author of Island of Vice, described the second half of 1896 as a drunken daydream. With no last call and cheap beds ready for you inside the bar itself, people indulged heavily. Once things inevitably got to a tipping point, the state ratified the Rains Law to cut down on the all-out insobriety and licentiousness running rampant in the city. It took a while to fade, but most Rain's hotels got hit, whether being shut down in court or having brewers refuse to supply them. A few years later, legit hotels started charging high prices for the food you were required to order with your drink, meaning that a drink on Sunday could cost as much as double the price of one on any other day of the week. Returning Sunday drinking to being a luxury only the rich could indulge in. Of course, it wouldn't be too long before all-out prohibition would become the law of the land, and those creative tricks would grow even more important for any proprietor determined to continue serving booze. Unfortunately, prohibition did not bring about the return of the rains sandwich, but if you, for some reason, want to enjoy dishes akin to what would have been served in those days of free lunches, there are a few bars in New York City happy to oblige, at least in a more modern and tasty version. You could go to one of my favorites, McSorley's, a 160-year-old bar in the East Village that very much likes to keep to its roots, with their menu, including only two drink options, light ale and dark ale, their staff, which remain almost entirely Irish and family members, and their decor, none of which has been taken down since 1910. I don't think they'd actually make you a rains sandwich, but you could order a roast beef sandwich and just keep it out for a few days before eating to get the same effect. In the late summer of 1181 CE, astronomers from China and Japan recorded a new star, a very bright star, which got almost as bright as Saturn before fading. And then a few months later in February, it had faded completely, no longer visible at all. It's thought that this so-called guest star was a supernova. It's disappearance the trademark explosion of a star that defines a supernova. But as those reporting on it explain, those explosions leave debris or supernova remnants which glow for centuries, and over 900 years, even with the most sophisticated technology of the last half a century, no one has ever been able to find any remnants of the guest star— and this is actually unusual because all other recorded supernovae from pre telescope times have had their remnants found and identified in the form of nebulas. As Phil Plate over at Sci Fi's Bad Astronomy says, this sighting in 1181 CE is the only one in the past millennium not to have an associated nebula with it. End quote. Until now, thanks to a group called the Deep Sky Hunters. And though they sound like a new reality show from the Discovery Channel, they're actually a group of astronomers who look through imaging from various satellites to find obscure objects. And among the hundreds they've identified over the years, one they found several years ago seems now to fit the description of a remnant that could have come from the guest star from 1181. The deep-sky hunters have named it PA-30 because it surrounds a star they named Parker's Star. Quoting Bad Astronomy, The nebula was first seen by deep-sky hunter Dana Patrick in 2013 while perusing images from the Wide Field Infrared Survey satellite, which scanned the entire sky multiple times as it orbited the Earth independently, this same star and nebula were discovered and analyzed by another group of astronomers who published their results in 2019 but didn't make the association with supernova 1181. The nebula is about 7,500 light years away, a decent distance across the galaxy. The nebula is roughly 7 light years across and shows a shell-like structure, both of which are typical for a supernova. The gas is expanding at 1100 kilometers per second, a bit slow for a typical supernova, but given that rate and the nebulous size, it would have started expanding about 990 years ago, plus or minus 250 years, which makes it just the right age to be the remnant for supernova 1181, end quote. But, Plate points out, the nebula and the star it surrounds are both pretty weird. Neither have any evidence of hydrogen or helium. Parker's star is also really hot, like 200,000 degrees Celsius. And just for reference here, the sun is about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Parker's star is also 40,000 times brighter than the sun, and it's blasting this super-fast wind of subatomic particles. All of these attributes from both the star and the nebula have led scientists to believe it's a rare type of supernova called a type Iax, which comes about as a result of merging between two white dwarfs. Professor Albert Zalstra, one of the international team members from Deep Sky Hunters, told the University of Manchester, quote, "...only around 10% of supernovae are of this type, and they are not well understood. The fact that SN 1181 was faint but faded very slowly fits this type. It's the only such event where we can study both the Remnant Nebula and the merged star, and also have a description of the explosion itself." end quote. Which is part of what makes this so cool. We have those records of people witnessing the explosion 900 years ago, and now we can see how it's changed since then. It's super cool. And reflecting on how those 12th century astronomers claimed the guest star just disappeared and how skeptical we could be about them not really knowing what they were looking at, Plate said, quote, It can be easy to disregard things seen by ancient people, relegating them to myth or ignorance. But in fact, many cultures were quite good at recording what they saw. And in this case, it's led to a very interesting mystery and a lovely scientific conclusion, end quote. Well, one way that ancient scientists might have actually had an advantage over us is that they probably did not have teenagers who were able to communicate with four million peers at once and convince them to use a scientific study for their own gain, completely messing up all the data. This is what happened to Prolific, a platform used by scientists for behavioral research, and to be fair, this is Kind of on them, in part. Many researchers depend on having representative population samples for their studies. But the platform didn't have any existing screening tools to ensure that that would happen. So after teenager Sarah Frank shared Prolific to her TikTok followers as a way to make some extra income by filling out surveys, and the video subsequently received over four million views, the platform was flooded with survey responses from people her age, mostly women. Not exactly representative of the whole population. But to back up, The Verge explained how online platforms like Prolific have totally changed the game for social scientists. Before, they'd have to arrange in-person surveys in the lab, usually using undergrads. I participated in tons of these at NYU. It definitely took longer than filling out an online survey. You had to sign up, fill out forms when you got there, sit through usually an hour for the experiment, and then walk to the bursar across campus to get your 30 bucks and it was more onerous and time-consuming for the scientists as well. But with the advent of first Mechanical Turk and then a few others, including Prolific, scientists were able to just, as Nicholas Hall, director of the Behavioral Lab at the Stanford School of Business, told The Verge, quote, program a survey, you put it online, and within a day, you have a thousand responses, end quote. Mechanical Turk, as some of you may be familiar, is a broader platform for crowdsourcing work, so Prolific was created to be specifically for scientific research studies, and tons of researchers use it. The Verge notes that it offers transparency, treats participants ethically, and quote, promises higher quality research subjects than alternative platforms like Mechanical Turk, end quote. And again, this is important. Researchers want people who are representative of the population, and ideally folks who aren't too accustomed to taking surveys, meaning that they might start to understand how they're crafted and anticipate how they should reply instead of being more genuine. And all of that sounds great and has worked well for several years, but Prolific did not have the guardrails up to sustain an onslaught of TikTok hustlers. In the days following Frank's video recommending Prolific as a source of additional income, researchers started noticing that their surveys were getting way more participants, which is great, but that they skewed 85-90% to women and had an average age of 21. It was Wayne State psychologist Hannah Schechter who seems to have figured out the connection to Frank's video, possibly via Reddit, where regular prolific survey takers dragged Frank for ruining the site, as many researchers pulled their studies and takers therefore had less to choose from. Predictably, many of them reached out to Frank to blame her personally, although, you know, all she did was make a video for her friends and, at the time, small crew of followers, sharing one way that she made a little extra money. She didn't have any ulterior motive and she we did not anticipate that the TikTok would spread so far. And while it's kind of wild to see how one TikTok could have such an outsized effect on an entire platform of research studies, it is dying down already. Prolific co-founder and CTO Phil and Bradley told The Verge, quote, "'Prior to TikTok, about 50% of the responses on our platform came from women.' The surge knocked this up as high as 75% for a few days, but since then, this number has been trending down and we're currently back to 60% of responses being from women, end quote. Quoting further from The Verge, according to Bradley, about 4,600 studies were disrupted by Frank's TikTok, around a third of the total that were active on the platform during the surge. Of those, he said, the vast majority should be salvageable. Prolific has refunded researchers whose studies were significantly impacted by the surge in women survey takers and introduced a new suite of demographic screening tools. The company announced these steps a month after Frank posted her video, and the company has now reorganized putting a team in charge of demographic balancing in order to more quickly recognize and respond to this sort of problem in the future. End quote. And Vlad Chutuk, a Yale grad student who runs studies on Prolific, pointed out to The Verge that since one thing researchers always want is people who aren't overly familiar with taking surveys, the responses during the big TikTok surge were actually kind of useful in their own way. As Chutuk said, young women who enjoy TikTok are people too. Well, The Great British Bake Off is officially back. I haven't watched the new episode yet, so no review here, but when I was trying to determine if the show is airing concurrently in the UK and the US, looks like it is, no three seasons behind nonsense anymore, I stumbled on a fun fact that maybe you already know, but if you don't, you now have something to add to the discussion the next time someone inevitably brings up The Great British Bake Off in front of you. So here in the States, it's technically called The Great British Baking Show, but I refuse to call it that. We have historically made British TV worse, so I never really even stopped to question why we renamed it. It just seemed like something stupid we would do. But turns out, there is a reason. And it's all the Pillsbury Doughboy's fault. Or, well, Pillsbury the company, but I assume Mr. Poppin' Fresh is the one making all the calls over there. Apparently, Pillsbury has owned the US trademark for the term Bake Off for many decades, so Great British Bake Off isn't allowed to use that term here. And I guess neither PBS nor Netflix were able to make a deal sweet enough for the Pillsbury Doughboy to convince him to let them use the name. In any case, the show is back on Channel 4 as Series 12 in the UK and on Netflix as Collection 9 here in the US. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.